0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you guys brought them, uh, I want you to turn to two different places. First, I want you to go to the end of Romans chapter 11, and then you can go to Galatians 2.20 and just kind of put your finger there, because we're going to go there secondly. As we continue today with a three-week series of messages that we started last week and that we're calling God's Word and the Pursuit of Holiness, and I want to pause at the beginning of today and say kind of what I did at the beginning of last week, which is simply that I know that's kind of a lofty-sounding title. I know it's kind of maybe sort of inaccessible in the sense that you hear it. And you think to yourself, all right, first of all, I don't know exactly what that means, but I do kind of get the impression that whatever it means, it's got to be important. And it is. God's Word and the pursuit of holiness. What are we talking about in this series? We're talking, first of all, about why it is that you and I, as believers in Jesus, as those who have been made clean by Jesus, as those who have been rescued and brought into the family of God by Jesus, as those who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus and all of the eternal blessings of Jesus. Why you and I as believers in Jesus, as that kind of a person, ought to get up every single day and each day resolve to pursue a life of even more radical obedience to Jesus than we did the previous day. So that's question number one. We talked about that last week. But then secondly, how do we do it? Whose power do we do that in? What are the practices and the disciplines that God comes along and in grace gives to us by which we might foster our relationship with Christ, our desire to get up every morning and to desire to pursue that life of even more radical obedience and our ability to do it? What does that mean? And last week we got together, we talked about that first question, and we saw that the answer to the first question was as an act of worship in response to the gospel. In other words, the reason you and I ought to get up as believers in Christ, made new in Christ, made clean in Christ, and all of the rest, and each day resolve to pursue a life of even more radical obedience to Christ than we did the day before, is as an act of worship in response to the gospel. And we saw an example of that last week in The One Thankful Leper. You remember the story, Ten Lepers Are Cleansed by Christ? One returns to offer to Jesus what he really deserves. And what is that? Because it's not a little something. It's not an occasional here and an occasional there. It's not a little bit of this. It's not a little bit of that. It's, hey, God, I carved out this little piece of my big pie of my life, and I'm going to give it to you as an act of worship in response to the gospel. No, it's the whole pie, guys. We talked about the fact that metaphorically speaking, it's sort of like we come to faith in Christ, we're made these new creations, we are rescued, saved completely and utterly by Him. And it's sort of like, metaphorically speaking, He gives us, you know, like this big giant bag and He says, okay, in response, here is what you ought to do and you ought to do it joyfully, not just dutifully. Not, oh man, I can't believe I've got to do this. But no, it's like my joy, God, to do this, you need to begin day by day to put everything in it. Your husband or your wife, put them in there. Your marriage relationship, put them in there. Your children, each one of them individually, individually put them in there. Together with all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of the aspirations that you've attached to them all of their lives, their safety put it in there, their health put it in there, your health put it in there. Your safety, dreams, ambitions, goals, lifelong, you know, plan, put it in there. Everything you own in there. And then get in there yourself and just kind of, you know, pull it up over your head, tie it in a knot and reach through the sides because it's metaphorical. There's no problem with this physically. And then just put like a really killer bow across the top, grab it about thigh high and hop it on over to Christ, just like that leopard did, if you will, and put it at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I don't know what you want to do with this today, but I do know this is what you deserve as an act of worship in response to the gospel. So that's what we saw last week in the example of the one thankful leper, and it's what we see again as we come to the book of Romans, chapter 11 in specifics, today. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans really drilling down on the gospel and talking about all kinds of things, but he talks specifically about who it is that we are In light of what it is that God actually requires of us, not what we would like for Him to require of us, not maybe what we've been told that He requires of us, not what we hope that He requires of us, not what we assume that He requires of us, but what He really requires of us, which is what? Because we talked about that last week, too. It is the perfect love of God and of one's neighbor from conception to death as expressed by the perfect obedience to God's perfectly holy law in thought, word, and deed And I want to say that again because I want you to sit and rest and just sort of stew in that for a minute, okay? That should make you feel uncomfortable. Here's the reality that law is given to us as a mirror, if you will, that we might look into it and see ourselves for who we truly are, spiritual lepers, incurably infected with the disease of sin, incapable of doing absolutely anything to rescue, to save, to cleanse, to heal ourselves, and hopelessly lost apart from the saving mercies of Christ, which are ours in faith. As we cry out to this one who is God-made man, God who assumed humanity that he might save humans, who kept his own standard in the person of Christ, perfect love of God and people and so forth, and who then at the end of that perfect life, which is ours by faith, took upon Himself our sin and death and died that it might die in Him and that we might live in His resurrection. So verse by verse, chapter by chapter, Paul is unpacking all of these different concepts and a whole lot more than just that. And it's sort of like as he's moving verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through these first 11 chapters, there is a song that's developing and building in his heart, you see. And by the time he gets to the end of chapter 11, it's like he can't keep it in any longer and he just breaks out in song and he sings this and listen to it. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's he's overwhelmed. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who makes God his debtor? Anyone? No. For from him and through him, And to him are how many things? A little something? An occasional here and there? Hey, God, here's this little slice of my pie, you know, and I think you ought to feel kind of happy about that. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And then listen to what he says next because it's significant. And it's what all of us are called to do in response to the gospel as an act of worship. We are not just to offer the songs of our lips, but we're also to offer the songs of our lives. Paul says this, Romans 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, key word, bodies as a what? As a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act, if you will, of worship. Your body's living sacrifice, spiritual act of worship. And I think in order really to appreciate what he's saying here, you've got to ask some questions like, what do I do with my bodies? Or ask it differently. Is there anything that you do that you don't use your body to do? Can you name anything? I'm going to go with no. So what is Paul doing? He's saying, okay, I've just laid the gospel out for you. And so much like I got so excited, I broke out in song. Hope you loved it. Hope you joined me. But now it's time to offer your whole life and not a little sliver of it, not a slice of the pie. No, the whole pie. Here's the bag. Put it in. All of it in. Husband, wife, fiance, boyfriend, girlfriend, singleness. Everything. And I think also that we need to understand something about what a sacrifice is that Paul understood and that we don't understand because we don't walk animals down to the temple nowadays. See, what the people in Paul's day and the folks that he originally wrote to would have understood that we don't necessarily get as 21st century Americans is that a sacrifice is an all-in, 100% deal. It's not a partial commitment. It is a full-on, complete, and total commitment. When you took the bull, the goat, the sheep, the pigeon down to the temple and you handed it over to the priest, they killed it, they put it on an altar, and they burned it up. It's all in. It didn't come home with you. It's an all-in commitment, and it's something that is dedicated wholly unto the Lord. So that's what God deserves from us as an act of worship in response to the gospel. And as I said last week, I think that the church with a capital C for some time now has really shied away from that message. And in thinking, I suppose, somehow that we're giving something to God's people by asking less of them than what God actually demands and deserves, we've actually taken. Because what we've done is we've said to the people of God, Hey, God is great and glorious, but He's not quite great and glorious enough to demand your all. And that's not true. And the funny thing is that God has made our hearts to look for something or someone great and glorious enough to demand our all. And He presents in the true gospel The Lord Christ. So the scripture makes it abundantly clear that the reason that you and I, as believers, are to get up every single day and each day to say, Okay, Lord, here's my goal. I'm going to pursue a life of even more radical obedience to you today than I did yesterday. And you know what? If you give me another day, I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow better than I did today. And then if you give me another day, well, then the next day better than I do tomorrow. And on and on it goes for as many days as the Lord gives us. We are to do that as an act of worship in response to His gospel. But what about the second part that we've been talking about? I mean, what is the, what is the second question? How do we do that? Because I hope that it's clear at this point that it's not in my strength or in your strength. By whose power then, and that's what I want to focus on, do we do that? It's by the power of Christ, accessed by us on a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year basis through faith. The Christian life from beginning to end is a life of faith. We enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're made clean and acceptable to Him, brought into His family, made His children. You get that. We've talked about that through faith completely, but we then don't take up our life and say, okay, now that I've come into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, I'm now going to have to, in my own strength, go out and live for Jesus and continue to earn the favor of God, and so on and so forth. No, it's a life of faith from beginning to end. By faith we enter into this new life, and by faith, every moment, every day, every week, every month, every year, we live that new life. It's by faith that we get up in each day, and say, "Okay, Lord, I'm more Yours today than yesterday, and then tomorrow, more than today, and then the next day, more than tomorrow." And kind of to make that point, I want us to look together at Galatians 2:20, and I want to look at it in sections. It is a loaded verse, and it builds as it goes. Paul, again speaking, this time to the Galatians, he's writing and he's talking here, first of all, about himself. And he says this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. You know, and maybe you're thinking, wow, I must have missed that part of the crucifixion story. I don't remember, you know, Paul being crucified with Jesus. So, you know, he's not in that sense. But, but in what sense was he? And in what sense were we? I mean, those of us who, like Paul, have been joined to Jesus inseparably by faith in Him. I mean, how is it that He or we or you was crucified with Him, or to put it differently, in what way or in what sense does the death of Jesus represent a death for Paul or for me or for you? And I'm going to give you two of many. But first of all, it represents the death of our sin. If we've seen who we are in the mirror, if you will, of God's law who we really are and panicked, (laughs) felt the despair of that and ran to Jesus for cleansing and have experienced that, then the death of Jesus for you, if that's you, was the death of your sin. For as I've already said, he put it all upon himself, nailed it to the cross, and in his death, your sin died. That's big, but it's more than that. For not only did your sin die, but the power of sin died. And that is a hugely significant realization when our goal is to get up each day and to sin less and to love God more by living more obediently to Him. The power of sin is dead in each one of our lives. There is the sense in which Paul is coming to us and saying, look, I know before you came to faith in Christ, sin was your master. Just call it like it was. It had total power over you. You were powerless against it. I mean, you might have been able to resist it a little bit, but ultimately you caved and then you caved and then you caved and then you caved and then you caved. caved. He's saying, hey, you know what? It was nailed to the cross with Christ. It's dead. You're new and things have changed. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And in His death... The power of sin died as well. Listen to what he says in Romans 6, verse 6. He says, we know, and to know something in the Bible means more than just to know it intellectually. I read a newspaper article on it, and I gained some information. No, it's more than that. It's I know because I've experienced it in my life. Paul is speaking of something that he and whoever represents we there have experienced in their lives, and he's holding it before us as something that we can and even should experience in our lives. He says we know that our old sinful self is the point was what? It was crucified. There's that language again. With who? With Jesus. As he died, it died in order that the body of sin, mine and yours and his and everyone else who believes in Christ might be brought to what? A little something? An annoying thing? it might be marginalized, minimized. No, it might be brought to nothing. It might be taken out of existence. Wow. And to what end that we would no longer be enslaved to sin? For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul is saying, look, before you came to faith in Christ, you were alive to sin and dead to Jesus. And now that you've came to faith in Jesus, you're alive to Jesus and dead to sin. And that, in a very practical way, is a game changer, or it should be. It changes everything. It means that for the first time ever, now that you've come to faith in Jesus, when you come to that fork in the road and the temptation before you is to sin or not to sin, that's the issue. And you're standing there like you've stood so many times before struggling with the reality that every time you've stood there before, I mean, let's just be honest, you've gone down the wrong road. And the tempter is coming along as he does and will continue to do and says things to you like, you know, I mean, come on. You've never defeated this. You've never beaten this. You're a slave to this. You've been a slave to this almost all of your life. You will be a slave to this until you die. You can now for the first time say, no, actually, I am dead to that, and it's dead to me. Yeah, previously I was its slave, but now there is a power within me where I can become its master. I no longer have to fail for the first time now that I am a new creation in Christ. There is hope that I might prevail over this. And the power of the one who spoke the worlds into existence lives within me which is basically what he says next. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And then he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Christ in me. And you're thinking, well, that's great, but how do I access that power? Because I'm still making the wrong decision at the fork in the road. Well, that's so much of what we're talking about in this series. It's how do I access the power of Christ? How do I foster my relationship with Christ? How do I live in such a way as to bring Him into my moment-by-moment existence and trust Him at every fork in the road that I might increasingly die to the sin that is dead to me and live to the Lord that is alive in me? And the answer, again, is not by our own effort, strength, and steam. If the Bible teaches us anything, it is that we are spiritually incapable of doing anything good. We just are on our own. But in Christ, we have great strength. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. As a result, he's saying, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now get up every single day and live. He says, of the life that I now live in the flesh, I live How? By faith in who? In the Son of God who loved, and I love the next word. It's the neatest part of the whole verse for me. Who loved me and who gave himself for me? He doesn't say who loved, you know, the world. He doesn't say who loved the church. He doesn't say who loved everyone in all of history that has ever placed their faith and trust in him, and I'm like one of those people. Throws himself in with a crowd and says, that's who he's loved. Now, that's all true, but he says "Who loved me." So he takes the love of Christ and he personalizes it to himself and in doing that, he gives you the ability to do the same. He's saying, who loves you? And he gave himself for you. Anyway, the last couple of weeks I've been reading a book on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you guys have ever read anything about his life. I'd heard a lot. I'd read kind of some of his writings, but I'd never read sort of the whole of his life, and it's been a great book. It's by a guy named Eric Metaxas, if you're interested. It's thick. Um, it will smash your toe if you drop it, so. but it's really, really good. And one of the things that I've learned, one of the many things that he did with his seminary students, in part he was a seminary professor, that's one of the things that he did in life is he had a practice. He would take these guys and he would actually go live with them somewhere. So he would have a house like in the middle of the woods somewhere and he would take them all and for their semester, if you will, he would go and live in a communal type of environment that he set up a discipline for. It was almost monastic-like. And so he established a routine and a discipline by which they all lived together. They did life together, one of the names of one of his books. And as part of that routine... He said, I'm going to give you guys one verse a week. We're going to have morning readings and evening readings, and we're going to study theology. We're going to do all these other things. But one of the things that we're going to do is I'm going to give you a verse a week, and you guys are going to spend a half an hour a day for each week meditating on that verse, praying over that verse, thinking about that one verse. Verse and hopefully sitting there with a pen and a piece of paper in your hand, writing down the thoughts that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind and the other verses that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind and the things in your life that the Holy Spirit wants to talk to you about that maybe He's bringing up to you in that particular verse and the people perhaps that you need to go deal with or talk to or pray for or whatever that He brings to your mind. He says, half an hour a day for a week, one verse. And the whole point of the exercise was to train these seminarians to come to hear the voice of the Lord, to come to recognize how it is that God speaks to us through His Word, because He does. So I want you to do that this week. And some of you, that's like a big deal. You're like, 30 minutes, I don't do that in a week. Well, that that just changed. (laughs) Might be the greatest week you've ever had spiritually, and hopefully it's just a beginning. But this is your verse. Galatians 2.20, half an hour a day, prayerfully considering it and breaking it down phrase by phrase. Hey, you know what? I have been crucified with Christ. The old me is gone, the new has begun. There are things in me that used to be so big and so alive, now dead. Lord, what does that mean for me? What what, what do you want to say to me then about that? What practices, habits, things do you want to now talk about? It's a little intimidating, isn't it? Or maybe it's just really liberating. It certainly has the power to be. And oh, by the way, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the Lord Christ himself who spoke the worlds into existence lives in you. Sit in that for a while. Meditate on that. Think and consider and ponder the possibilities of that. Let that expand the horizons of the imagination of your faith. Lord, what does that mean practically for me? And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in myself, not in money, not in status, not in how would you fill in the blank? Because I think that's a topic of conversation. What does the Lord want to talk about there? the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, okay? Who loved me and who gave Himself for me. Own that this week. Spend time every day this week just thinking, wow, what does that mean? What does the Lord want to communicate to you through that? So this one verse half an hour a day, pen and paper, even if that violates your impatient personality like it does mine. It's very helpful. Writing things down that the Lord brings to your mind. Praying and praising. Considering and worshiping. And then going out. And as He trains you each day, Pursuing a life in his power that 's more obedient today than yesterday, and then tomorrow, if you get it it 's a gift you know then today and then the next day, wow, then tomorrow, and so forth so there 's your challenge for the week and next week, if you come back what we 're going to talk about are the practices that God has given us by which in cooperation with His Holy Spirit, empowered by His Spirit, we pursue this life of holiness. We pursue a life that gives God what He really deserves, which is everything. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we do praise You this morning. Lord, as we catch glimpses of Your glory, Father, as we are enabled by your grace to see you through, through music, Lord, through the preaching of your word, through prayer, through fellowship with your people, God, and we are reminded of who you are and who we're not. As we look into the mirror of your law and we see our true reflection, We recognize that we need you. And so, Lord, I pray that if somebody's here today who does not know you, they've never entered into this relationship, but you've given them by faith that aha moment of, wow, (laughs) I do need Jesus, that they would just cry out to you like the lepers of last week. Lord, in mercy they would ask that you would forgive and heal them, that you would cleanse them, of their sin, that you would fill them with your spirit, even now. And then, God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would awaken within us the reality of what, frankly, in response to that great rescue, you deserve from us, you demand from us, what you, in grace, require us for our own good and for your glory to bring to you each day. You might break us out of all of the lesser pursuits of our lives, for they are, all of them, lesser. And call us to deal seriously and joyfully with you this week. Take this verse in your word and use it to pierce our hearts. Use it to instruct us. Use it to guide us. Use it to train us in how you speak. Use it to bring comfort, Lord, and even worship and praise, both in song and in the way we live. We pray these things for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.